Hello, and welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, back from vacation, and I am joined by the guys, Steve Hayes, David French, and Jonah Goldberg. We've got some topics today. China, infrastructure, immigration, and Facebook. Let's dive right in. Steve, China. David, China. <laughs> All right, I'm still rusty. A little. A Sorry, little. So that's David. Oh man. And that's Steve. <laughs> it's, I get the hair confused. I'll, I'll make I'll make Sarah feel better by going straight to Steve, but I'll 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 set it up. All right. So just to just to read a paragraph or two here to just set the set the stage record numbers. This is from The New York Times yesterday. Record numbers of Chinese military planes probed the airspace near Taiwan over the weekend, prompting China, uh, Taiwanese fighter jets to scramble and adding muscle to Beijing's warnings that it could ultimately use force to take hold of the island. And so when we say record breaking numbers, we're not talking about a few planes. It says the sorties by nearly 80 People's Liberation Army aircraft on Friday and Saturday as China observed its national holiday, followed a pattern of Beijing testing and wearing down Taiwan by flying overseas southwest of the island. So I'll start with you, Steve. The question is, in the short term, how concerned should we be by, the, by these flights? Um, is this muscle, just muscle flexing in response to some unusual carrier deployments, for example, sort of tit for tat? Is this a, does this seem to be sort of a, a one of these periodic short-term Taiwan flare-ups? Or is this signifying, in your view, something greater? No, it's real, and we should take it seriously. Um, you've had some observers suggest that this is just... Chinese sort of chest thumping because of this national day and, and trying to sort of boost patriotism for internal uh, political reasons. That may be part of what's going on here, but there have been very, very clear messages um, in outward facing statements from the regime, from the communist regime that suggest we better take this seriously. This is not mere symbolism. Uh, recent weeks, the Chinese Minister of Defense said, national rejuvenation and reunification is the common aspiration of the people and the irresistible trend of the times. Those who follow it will prosper. And uh, Chinese state media, the Global Times, had a headline that said, time to warn secessionists and their fomenters, war is real. Now, look, this could be, you know, a lot of tut-tutting and, and um, you know, trying to, to project strength or to, to keep the United States on its, on its heels. But when you have a regime as powerful as the Chinese regime is, when you have um, them saying this, not just in the context of the last few days, but similar things over the course of weeks. And when you put it in the broader context of what we know about uh, Xi's aggression, I think it is important to take it seriously and to, to pay attention when the Chinese tell us what they're doing. So 
Jonah, um, let's look at this from the standpoint. So th- there's some interesting commentary that it essentially has said something along these lines. That is, what when the United States and the UK announced their um, their deal with Australia to supply technology to allow Australia to be, to build a nuclear submarine fleet, not nuclear armed submarine, but nuclear powered submarines, that it signaled that the balance of power was going to decisively shift against China. The, these, these submarines are extraordinarily powerful. China doesn't have anything that can compete with them, nothing really on, this, on the horizon that can compete with them, and that that would be long-term stability but short-term instability. In other words, that China could see that its window to potentially um, decisively win a war if it went uh, decided to attack um, tai- Taiwan was actually in the near term. Uh, The question isn't about military capability here. The question here is about the Biden administration. And in your view, is this something where the Biden administration is now facing a very important test of its um, willingness to deter China between here and at least during its, during its first term? Uh, Is this a, is this China post Afghanistan sort of seeing What's left here of American will? Uh, is this the kind of thing that there needs to be decisive, a decisive response, of course, short of war from Biden to demonstrate that this is not exactly the window of opportunity for China? I sure hope not, <laughs> because like, I don't have a huge amount of confidence that, that the Biden administration is um, willing or right now psychologically in a in the right headspace to make tough, hard, bold decisions. Um, you can say that the decision to pull out of Afghanistan was a tough, hard, bold decision, but they did it really badly. And um, and that probably is made a bunch of people gun shy. Um, I, I, I'm more comfortable talking about uh, looking at this from the big picture rather than the small picture, because we never, you never know in these, in the moment, you know, from Monday to Thursday of this week, is this really the beginning of a new geostrategic, you know, crisis that, um, redefines the 21st century? Maybe, but maybe (laughs) not. Um, the, the big picture is, I think China is really brittle. It's very strong, like marble, but it's also really brittle. And um, the the demographic problems and socioeconomic problems that China faces are very, very real. And historically, nations that are set up like China's unleash nationalist sentiment as a way to distract from and channel popular discontent. And they've been doing that for a very long time. And they're getting worse at it or they're getting it the problem is getting worse and i i i see the saber rattling with taiwan as part of that i add into it the fact that i think look i'm perfectly fine as i already did heaping a lot of scorn and criticism on the Biden administration in all of this but i also think that the trump presidency and the unpredictability of it the unseriousness of it in a lot of ways sent a really bad signal to a lot of adversaries and countries that said, you know, this country doesn't have the same, you know, the United States doesn't have the game it once had. 
And then Biden compounded it with the crappy withdrawal from Afghanistan and all this talk about debt ceiling stuff. And so I think you may be right that they see there's this window of opportunity here to, you know, take Taiwan in the near term that might disappear in the long term. But they also might just think, let's just press the envelope and see what we can get away with because it's our moment in the sun. It's very, it feels very much like Japan and Germany at the beginning of the 20th century thinking that they were the new rising powers and that they deserved their, their, their moment and that the old powers were fading away. And I, I, I think they're wrong about the, to look at the United States that way, but I can't say that it's a crazy way to look at it from their perspective. David, I have two events that I want to ask you about in this topic. Then you can ask me whatever. But, but before okay. I answer, there's two things that have been sort of sticking in my mind from the recent past. Um, one is the General Milley conversation with his Chinese counterpart, uh, because by all accounts that we have now, it seems like the Chinese really thought there was some chance of an offensive action by the United States against China, which from our perspective, I think seems bonkers. Like, no, we're obviously not attacking China, but clearly from their perspective, they really, like, they believed it so much, at least according to our intelligence about what they believed, that General Milley felt the need to make a phone call to say, no, no, we're not about to attack your country. Um, very Cold War red phone type stuff which I think, um, for me at least, concerns me because China's perception of reality as we think of our perception of reality clearly are not the same, how they view us and how we view them. Uh, and two, interestingly, and this one's forward-looking, um, but China's view on their Winter Olympic Games this time and their preparation for it, and I understand it's a pandemic, so it's a little hard to compare, but comparing it to their last summer games that they had in Beijing, Wow, this feels really different. Um, as as one reporter put it, um, those summer Beijing games were for the world, and this time China doesn't care about anyone else. Um, and and so China's worldview becoming both more insular, more paranoid, um, and less tethered to what I would call sort of an international realistic reality, whatever you want to call it. Um, am I? Am I right to be nervous about that? You are right to be nervous. And I think point one, let me get to point one on something that I don't think that a lot of people understand and appreciate because most news coverage is not written from the standpoint of, nor is it written by people who are conversant really in military strategy. And people would read that and say, what on earth? China was worried we are going to attack them. Are you kidding me? What? Um, what, on what planet would they think that that was a possibility? But if China's number one, if, if the war that China is planning for, the war they're planning for, by and large, overall others, aside from, for example, consistent border issues with Vietnam and consistent border issues with, China, uh, with India, uh, but the one that's front of mind for them is the, an, an invasion of Taiwan, which would in all probability kick off with an absolutely massive first strike by China against Taiwan and potentially our own forces to try to eliminate the biggest threat in the region, which is the U.S. Pacific Fleet. If we believed that such an attack was coming, the smartest thing we could possibly do from a military perspective only, let's just remove politics from it, is attack them first. That's the 
absolute smartest military thing. Think Israel in the Six-Day War where the um, Arab armies were massing against Israel and Israel hit them first and, and knocked their air forces out of the war and the rest was history. And so if you're wargaming and you're planning as China an attack on Taiwan, in all probability, the thing you're most worried about is the U.S. hitting them before they hit Taiwan. That's the thing you're most worried about. So that's why you would have a conversation. That's why you would have these bilateral communications between generals. But like you game that out more, like you've gamed it out to like, you know, one chest step back, but then that makes them have a, you know, itchy trigger finger. If they think we're going to strike them first and that makes them more likely to strike us earlier and you can keep backing that up. Uh, and that's yes. concerning. Yes. That's why I brought up last time we talked about this, the Able Archer 83 exercise when NATO and Warsaw Pact tensions were at their absolute highest and why we consistently do have these bilateral communications. Like we had bilateral communications in Syria where there were Russian and American planes in the same airspace because we didn't want to screw up and accidentally get into war. So that's why when I first heard that Millie report, it didn't alarm me. Like my default was not to say traitor. My default was to say, this is an, a time of instability. But the second point- But it also you makes you think, by the way, that China isn't paranoid they're realistically playing out their game theory. Yes, right. Which yes, is different. That's, <laughs> maybe more that's concerning, a, maybe less concerning, but... It is It is exactly playing out their game theory, just as a NATO and the Warsaw Pact did constantly throughout the Cold War. And the, the Winter Olympics point is interesting to, uh, to me, and I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't really thought of that before. But... Everyone is caved, right? To be clear, there's no real talk yeah. of boycott anymore. They still have concentration camps filled with ethnic minorities. If you are not Han, you do not have the same rights as everyone else. Like so, and the, those two things I think make up the ends of the spectrum. And then there's all sorts of human rights violations in between. And everyone's like, "Welp," but China, and so we're doing it anyway. And China sees that. Yeah. I mean, look, the Beijing Olympics and these Olympics, I think you're, you're exactly right. Beijing Olympics were, hello world, look at this global superpower. And their and opening ceremony are, was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, train uh, and and uh, the tra- auditioning and training under it was under brutal conditions, but that's yeah, another. That's another story. This one is, yeah, whatever. Of course, a superpower it would have the Winter Olympics. I mean, that that's there's just a different atmosphere about it. I think you you raise a really good point. But I have I have the question for you, Sarah, which is this: How much do you think, as a practical matter, all of our domestic political disarray, as a practical matter, how much should an a an external power like a Russia or a China Look at this. Should they see it as surface, which would be which would dissolve immediately in a crisis, or should they see this as profound and something that they could reasonably exploit? That's where COVID, I think, was its most damaging in a sense because they can see that and say there was a big crisis and it divided them more, not less. Um, you know, you have Portugal, I guess, which is. 95% vaccinated. Um, I was in the Galapagos, by the way, which is 100% vaccinated. Uh, and I think Ecuador is roughly 60%. It's about where we are. Of course, their um, access to vaccines, very different than ours, but it's just not political. 
Um, and ours became so political so quickly, really deepening those divides. I think that's something that they're watching. But I wonder, so there's, there's a domestic component for those countries and a foreign policy component. The foreign policy component, I don't think there's any question that they see it as something to exploit. Obviously, Russia does, right? Um, if there's one thing that came out of the Mueller report, it is, yes, absolutely. Russia was not only attempting to interfere in the 2016 election, they very much did. We indicted 12 Russian intelligence officers for their role in doing just that. Um, but domestically, I think it gives China a really, really important talking point that they've had, that they've been using the whole time rather, but more evidence for it, which is, um, see, uh, republics don't work. I think it's, you know, one, one additional point, you know, if you look at the way that the U S intelligence community has, um, assessed these kinds of maneuvers, um, these kinds of potential threats in the past, there seems to be, and, and, and there are many, many differences between what's happening now in potentially the lead up to, to, to something in, um, with respect to, to Taiwan and what happened, uh, in Ukraine, but there was a very passive attitude, I would say in the U S intelligence community about what we saw in the, the lead up to what the Russians did in Ukraine, sort of a, this would be way too bold and way too crazy for the Russians to do. So we assess that it's unlikely and then it happened. And then we were caught flat footed. I would say just in, in talking to people, um, mostly in the pre-election period, who have access to, to intelligence on China, I was struck by the fact that there seemed to be a similar attitude towards China. China wants stability. China needs the United States as a, as a trading partner. China wouldn't do sort of big, bold, risky undertakings for fear of losing the stability that that it wants. That may end up being the correct assessment, but it doesn't give me a, a lot of comfort. The, the, the people I was talking to were talking in that particular context about the election and, you know, in effect said, China has the capability really screwing up our elections if China wanted to screw up our elections, but they don't want to because they want us as a trading partner, all the things I, I said. I'm, I'm less uh, comforted by that baseline assumption in this context, particularly when you look at the belligerent language uh, coming out of Beijing now. One, one of the things right before World War I was there was a lot of people are saying, we're too close now. We have too many trade relationships. Heck, Marriage between the royal families. It was the new globalization before World War I. But the bellicose language uh, won out, to say the least. Well, maybe if Hunter Biden, if Hunter Biden could marry Xi's daughter, we could ah, solve that. <laughs> such a great idea coming from Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if he has a daughter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Jonah. 
you're up on infrastructure and like there's so much tied up with the infrastructure conversation. I just want to like, ex- like tell. So we're really talking about the Hill because there's bipartisan infrastructure plan, which has been languishing in the House, didn't come up for a vote like we were promised. By the way, really funny to leave for the Galapagos, which we did not have internet, leave for the Galapagos. And it was like this frenzy over infrastructure. And I come back and it's this frenzy over infrastructure. And I was very confused (laughs) because it looked like I had gone into a time warp. It was like the exact same news story. And I was like, wait, but what? Huh? Um, I have since caught up uh, and it, like, or I could have just not caught up as it turns out. So there's bipartisan infrastructure, there's reconciliation package, there's the debt ceiling. And then of course, there's the looming shutdown over, uh, you know, budget problems. So a lot going on on the Hill. Let's talk about all of it, maybe. I don't know. Jonah, what are we talking about? Excellent question. Um, <laughs> it's uh, It's a hot mess. And, um, and also, I mean, the, it's, it's funny. The only real news that you missed was a mob of idiot activists chasing Kristen Sinema into the bathroom. And people wanted to make that the issue. I think in part because some of us are so tired of talking about infrastructure that we have to put out cigarettes in our forums just to feel alive again. Um, <laughs> And uh, that that felt like one of those issues to me that I've talked about a lot with reporters in particular, that everyone can have an opinion on whether you should chase someone with a video camera into a bathroom. It's really easy. Whereas talking about the different infrastructure packages and the debt ceiling and, oh, they're actually different. Um, that takes actual expertise. Like you need to be Haley Birdwill to talk about that. Um who has been awesome, by the way, if you're not following Haley on Twitter, I know she subbed in for me last week and it was great. Um, But just an extra shout out to Haley, both a thank you for subbing, but also she's brilliant. Not only is she good to follow on Twitter, but she's also good to follow in her writings for The Dispatch, um, which have value as well and pay our bills. Okay, so a bunch of different things going on. Um, uh, first of all, as you hinted at, we talked about in the green room, uh, a lot of people are confused about all the different things going uh, that are all the different pieces of all of this. Uh, there's a the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has acquired the nickname of the thug from the Back to the Future movies, Biff. Um, that is like <laughs> traditional infrastructure. It's a, uh, it's what is it? One point two trillion dollars, five hundred billion of new spending and expansions of some other stuff it's confusing but that's like bridges and roads and whatever then there's the what some people are calling the reconciliation bill which is also the human infrastructure bill which bernie sanders says the progressives have already compromised because they they wanted six trillion dollars in spending and um and they're willing to come down to $3.5 trillion in spending. This is very much like my daughter saying she compromised by saying she only wanted one pony for her birthday rather than three <laughs> ponies for her birthday. Um, and then there's this really arcane word magic thing called reconciliation, which is a budget trick or budget scheme that was put in place to work around the filibuster, which says on budget issues and budget issues alone, you can get stuff passed with only 50 votes instead of, uh, and, and, and skip the filibuster stuff so you don't need two-thirds to overcome a filibuster. And the issue of the day is, is that they want to do the full $3.5 trillion 
through reconciliation because that way they can get it passed. But Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona don't want, have not commit, fully committed to doing that. So people are mad at them and following them into bathrooms. Meanwhile, there's a whole other thing called the debt ceiling where we got to raise the debt ceiling. Otherwise, we can start defaulting on our loans, which would be what economists call bad. And so <laughs> the idea is, and, and but Mitch McConnell says the Republicans aren't going to help. Lots of people think that's irresponsible. Uh, Democrats can do it alone since they're in charge of the whole budget process in both houses of Congress. And, but the only way the Democrats can do that, and this is the thing I think confuses a lot of people, is if they do it through reconciliation. And so they want to get the debt, they want to, Democrats, the Republicans want the Democrats to use reconciliation and use up reconciliation with using it for raising the debt ceiling. The Democrats say, no fair. First of all, you raised all this debt, so uh, you should be in favor of doing it, um, and you should just let us do it through the normal process. And then Joe Biden had a gaffe, a Kinsley gaffe, where he said, look, one of the reasons why we don't want to do this is because if we do, we'll have to have Democrats vote on all sorts of things they don't want to vote on, which was not a good thing to reveal. So with that in mind, with that schoolhouse rock moment over, um, Wait, the uh, shutdown. You didn't do the shutdown. Sh- so then there's the shutdown, right? So if we don't raise the debt ceiling, correct, then or we don't, we don't, if we don't do the debt ceiling or we don't reauthorize a new budget, uh, the government starts shutting down and uh, shutdowns are stupid. Uh, they've never worked for people who push them, but the party that gets blamed for them usually suffers for it. And of course, the deep state has a practice where they are essentially like a weird uh animal who has its sort of vital organs on the outside and they start closing down the stuff that normal americans care about first um rather than the stuff that nobody cares about and all arguments during shutdowns become profoundly stupid um so with all that said steve there were many of us who had high hopes that joe manchin was the sane democrat you know, we've many times here, what, David, what do you call him? Uh, he is first Lord of the Coal Soaked, first of his name, Lord of the Coal Soaked Hills. That's yes. right. He's the plenipotentiary <laughs> titular <laughs> president of the United States of America. And um, he says it is now, his, his position is now that he is for the hard infrastructure thing and on the soft infrastructure package he can't go higher than 1.5 to $2 trillion. And it sounds like he will vote for something that hits those numbers. Joe Manchin has already voted for $6 trillion in spending relating to the pandemic, including a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill earlier this year, agreeing to 3.5 additional trillion dollars in spending would have, like five years ago, marked Joe Manchin as a Bernie Sanders crazy big spending left winger. Now it marks him as the the rock of moderation in the Senate. Is this a sign that we are going to spend ourselves into oblivion and should we all buy gold? Um, I mean, yes, on the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I think that's very useful framing. You know, Sarah and I had uh, Brian Riedel from the Manhattan Institute on on the podcast a week and a half ago. And asked him a lot of these kinds of questions, just asked him to put, put these things in 
proper perspective for us. And, you know, it, it was the case that, um, you know, until it, at the time of pre pandemic, we had racked up $16 trillion in publicly held debt, uh, in the history of the country. If these things pass in anything close to what is being currently debated sort of on the, on the higher end, we will have $44 trillion 10 years from now. I mean, that is just insane growth. It's unsustainable. And uh, despite what you might hear from the Biden White House, this is not all paid for. Um, This is not likely to be dollar for dollar free or zero cost as uh, as they've taken to saying it. That's the other thing that Sarah missed was that the White House was claiming that they could spend three and a half trillion dollars for zero cost because they'll be taxing people to pay for it, which is not earth math. My favorite is when they say that like fixing the tax loopholes or enforcing the tax code will make up that amount of money, which just has been debunked over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. <laughs> Waste, fraud, and abuse. That's the, that's the liberal version. It's funny. It's funny to hear um, uh, the White House and, and Democrats make these arguments. I was on Fox News Sunday this past Sunday and Cedric Richmond, a former a legislator from Louisiana, who's now a, a top advisor at the, the Biden White House, was talking to Chris Wallace, and and Chris said he he made this claim, sort of zero cost, and he not only made the claim that this three point five trillion dollars in in new spending, or not all of it, new spending in, in increased spending, would be zero cost. He then said that the twenty seventeen Trump's tax cuts were very costly. Which, again, if you're letting people, you can be in favor of those tax cuts or oppose them. But if you're letting keep people keep their own money, it's hard for me to argue that that is a cost to the government. Um, but that's the way that that uh, he framed it. So two important developments, I think, this past week. One, we learned via reporting in Politico about this deal that Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer had reached in which Manchin laid out in in pretty great detail what he would be willing to do, how much he would be willing to spend. And he did this on a document that he had Chuck Schumer sign back in the summer. So all of this talk from progressives, from Democrats, from folks at the White House, that they didn't really know what Joe Manchin wanted, that they were perplexed about how this would proceed because Manchin was this black box. It was all nonsense. They knew exactly what Manchin wanted. They just didn't want it too. Second point on the, the question of debt ceiling and using reconciliation to get there. The, There's a, a report in Punchbowl News earlier this week that the parliamentarian had quietly advised both Democrats and Republicans that Democrats wouldn't use up their limited ability to go to reconciliation for the big package if they used reconciliation for a debt ceiling hike, which took away a key argument that Democrats had been making, as as Jonah laid out earlier. At the same time, Joe Manchin, who is opposed to nuking the filibuster, who has indicated that he he doesn't love reconciliation on the big package, said that he would be open to reconciliation for a debt ceiling hike. 
So I think it leaves Democrats with a pretty tough argument here. Um, you know, when we had Brian Riedelon, he, he talked about how Democrats used to kind of uniformly oppose debt ceiling hikes when Republicans had power. Republicans have, have opposed debt ceiling hikes when Democrats have power. But what's happened more recently is the, the majority party gives the minority party something in exchange for some support on a debt ceiling hike. And he pointed to 2018 when um, Republicans agreed to give Democrats uh, a three, I think it was a $300 billion lift in spending caps. Nancy Pelosi still voted against that. But what's happening now is Democrats are essentially saying, no, we're not going to give you anything. We're not going to do that kind of a deal. Because it's really important that the debt ceiling be raised. And at the same time, they're saying we are also going to pass, you know, potentially $3.5 trillion in, in massive social spending on a purely partisan basis. So while I don't think Republicans, uh, including Mitch McConnell, would ever let uh, this crisis get to the point where the debt ceiling really was breached, I think they're on pretty solid ground. Uh, making the case that Democrats are are acting in bad faith. They can do this on their own if they want to. They're not giving any concessions to Republicans, as has become custom in the in the past several years. And they're insisting on passing this massive new spending bill without Republicans because they didn't want to include Republicans in that conversation from the beginning. So one note to what Steve just said, but uh, Mitch McConnell is making the very persuasive, I think, uh, statement. Um, Here's his quote. Uh, the debt ceiling is often a partisan vote during times of unified government. In 2003, 2004, and 2006, Mr. President, referring to Joe Biden, you joined Senate Democrats in opposing debt limit increases and made Republicans do it ourselves. You explained on the Senate floor that no votes did not mean you wanted the majority to let the country default, but rather that the president's party had to take responsibility for a policy agenda which you opposed. Your view then is our view now. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty. That's good stuff. Yeah, pretty standard statement. I, um, I also though, there's, here's my question. Joe Manchin has said that the Hyde Amendment, the amendment um, that prevents federal spending on basically abortion, in short, uh, it's been included in every budget thing uh, since going back to what Henry Hyde in the 1970s. Um, that. If they don't include that, that is a red line for him and that the spending plan would, quote, be dead on arrival if it's not included. I don't see how Democrats are going to include the Hyde Amendment, how they could, how the progressives could agree to that. So is this conversation over? Who's bluffing? I, I, I don't think. That Manchin is bluffing. And this, this is a good segue. I was going to ask Sarah a question, but it's actually a good segue for my David question. I'll circle back on Sarah. So you wrote about the goon squads going into the bathroom with Kristen Sinema. Uh, the, I think I'm characterizing generally, fairly, or directionally correctly that the argument, forget the argument about whether or not it's right to follow women into the bathroom. Fact check. It's not. And, you know, uh, it says so in the Talmud and the rest is commentary. But um, the argument from the left about why they're so mad at cinema and mansion is their argument is that two senators 
should not hold up this whole agenda. Um, and the problem with that argument is that two senators aren't holding up the whole agenda. 52 senators are holding up the whole agenda. And Kristen Sinema did not get elected to be a lockstep vote for the Democratic Party. She got elected to be the senator from Arizona. Joe Manchin, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Joe Manchin understands his state better than most of his critics do. Uh, in a state that Donald Trump won by nearly 40 points, that he only won by 18,000 votes, I think, the idea that uh, he should vote him, he should be the Marjorie Mizgolis, Mizinski, whatever that woman's name was, who voted for the Clinton tax bill and vote himself out of office um, for the benefit of AOC and Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders, uh, does and, and against the will of what he thinks the people of West Virginia want him to do, strikes me as sort of silly. But this is where we are. And so I, I guess the question I have is, how does this budget stuff reflect the larger culture war polarization stuff that you and I, that you in particular, you wrote a whole book on this. How, is it, is it all being subsumed into red versus blue or are there, you know, or does the math actually matter to anybody at this point? Well, I don't, I think that one of the key issues is that people don't know the math. I mean, they, so one of the key issues is it's not just that people are very divided and want different things. They're often under dramatic misunderstandings or they're operating under dramatic misunderstandings of their own power and what they can actually accomplish. And so, um, for example, if you, if you, there are folks on the left who believe that all that is between us and sort of this enduring domination is enough mobilization of our base. And you see that same thing on the right. And so therefore squishes are to be just shoved aside in favor of sort of this, you know, this massive uh, wave of a mobilized ideological force. Now, that's not going to happen in West Virginia, but I have actually seen people who know better, who should know better, arguing otherwise, that there's sort of this untapped resource of West Virginia progressives that could sweep aside Joe Manchin and hold the Senate seat, which is just nuts. And I think that one of the things that we have to recognize as part of all of our, our, as part of our political debate is there's an awful lot of partisans who are just quite simply operating in a different kind of political reality. And that includes people on the Trump right. That includes uh, some people on sort of the, this democratic socialist left. A lot of them, for example, have rely a great deal on sort of these this issue polling that a lot of more left-wing pollsters do where they they consistently poll that a lot of these economic issues or a lot of these democratic agenda items poll really well in isolation. And in fact, you know, there's this University of Virginia study or poll that just came out that showed that the vast majority of sort of the big package um, is supported by large numbers, in, in many cases, a, a a majority of Trump voters. So the Biden package, if you ask Trump voter, voters line by line, but politics, that's not how politics is conducted. And that's not how these, these coalitions uh, exist in the real world. And so what, you, what, what you're dealing with isn't just a set of real differences that exist, which are, which are, which are um, substantial, and important and meaningful, 
but you're also dealing with an enormous amount of sort of false confidence and 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 a false belief that one side or the other is really truly the voice of the people and if they can only get what they want it is going to they're going to sweep into power not just sweep into power more but maintain that power and so they don't i don't think they look at cinema and mansion and think the smarter ones might say, well, it's worth it to lose their seats for the policy win. The smarter ones might say, this is a cost-benefit analysis. They'll lose their seats, but we'll get the policy win that will help America. A lot of them are laboring under this belief that we can have our cake and eat it too, and Joe Manchin just doesn't see it. He just doesn't see how great all of this is. Um, one, one last thing on, on the numbers, just real quick. It is difficult to remember that so we've already had an infrastructure bill that is part of a bipartisan agreement and mansion would be up for what 1.5 trillion more in spending the tea party got going over an obama obama stimulus plan that was oh i don't know four or five hundred billion less than the already agreed upon stimulus pack i mean already agreed upon infrastructure package um that is the Tea Party got going on a uh, stimulus package that was uh, 25% of the total spending or 30% of the total spending that Joe Manchin has already agreed to. I mean, this is the path we're on. This is the path we're on. And no one person should think it ends here, not one person. And so, you know, that this is what this is what really concerns me far more than the inside baseball about whether is this going to end up being 3 trillion total or 3.8 trillion total? It's going to be too much. And five years from now, we might be negotiating over numbers that make this look miserly. So you're setting me up. I, I appreciate it, you guys. Uh, you're setting me up for my question for Sarah. Um, Sarah, like, I know I'm not going to step on the toes of the Baker whatever Election Reform Commission. We all know that was the greatest commission in the history of commissions. If they had a commission on what the great commissions were, they would say that the Baker Carter Commission was the car, was the end of all commissions. But there was also this thing called Simpson Bowles, and the only reason I bring it up is that it was supposed to be about deficit reduction. And Simpson Bowles had this quaint idea that revenues and spending in the United States should be pegged to around twenty one percent of GDP. I thought that was reasonable at the time, even if that resulted in my taxes going up. Uh, and I checked. It's really hard to tell because the numbers have been all over the place. But right now, we're at somewhere between, depending on the time of day, like 35% of GDP or 44% of GDP, which is either a little below or a little above the EU norm. But the one thing that's completely gone is anyone giving a rat's derriere about debt. This used to be something that was a major, like you, you've taken the position that foreign policy doesn't really matter in elections seems to me like debt doesn't either. A, is that right? And what is your theory about why that at least seems to be the case? I think the chicken little stuff over debt doesn't matter anymore. Like, oh, if we raise the debt one more time, the sun's going to explode. It was becoming so increasingly uh, world ending. Like it was those doomsdayers where they had to start picking dates like next week that the world was going to end. And they're like, oh, my calculations were off. It's actually in two weeks. Um, and that is dead now, but what is very much alive and very, very much, I think matters in this next election is inflation. 
And uh, while the two are not, you know, sitting right next to each other, they're not not related. Um, And so I think as people will say they're voting on inflation and pocketbook issues, that could sort of reverberate back into a debt conversation. Um, And that, you know, there's nothing more powerful than going to the grocery store and finding out that your orange juice is twice as expensive. Oh, the sun exploding is more powerful. But yes, I agree with you on a a day-to-day basis. And Americans love their bacon. And remember the bacon shocks um, of of COVID. I mean, can we all just take a moment of silence for our, to pour one out for our bacon times? And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right. So we're going to give kind of short shrift to immigration this week. We'll give longer shrift to it, appropriate shrift to it uh, in the future. But in short, we've had resignations from the Biden administration, Harold Coe being the most recent. He was on the legal team at the State Department. Uh, Yale Law students will know the name well. Um, He said that Biden continuing to use Title 42, uh, the Trump-era health measure to expel people from the country without an asylum hearing, uh, is illegal and inhumane. Uh, basically, these these resignations pushing the immigration issue from the left, while Biden is undoubtedly getting squeezed from the right uh, with events like Del Rio and fifteen thousand people camping under a bridge. Um, and my question to you, Steve, is just politically for a moment, the Biden administration, uh, the Biden White House. I think they're they're filled with some pretty smart people, politically smart people there who understand what happened in 2016, that immigration did become a major issue and you had a backlash that then put Trump into office. There's 47 reasons why Trump got elected, right? Each one sufficient uh, on its own, but undoubtedly immigration was one of them. So if they cave to the left and simply say, yep, borders are open, um, they very much risk not just a Republican majority in 2022. I think that would go without saying, actually. Um, But some real uphill stuff in 2024 and potentially, you know, Trump walking into the White House. Uh, At the same time, resignations from your left, base enthusiasm dropping. You talk to progressives and this is their number one issue right now. 
Um, and they think that this they they believed Biden during the campaign. And now they're looking at his actions and they're horrified. Uh, so, Steve, politically, what's the smart move for the White House? You know, it's interesting because, I mean, other than Title 42, I would say that his actions haven't been that antagonistic to the left. He hasn't given them everything that that they want, certainly. But you can go back and trace the course of his his White House's immigration policy making, and there's plenty for the for the left to to be happy about. He's rolled back a lot of of Trump's initiatives. The, they don't the, want I, ICE. They don't want Border Patrol. They're using the video with the reins and saying like this was happening under the Biden administration. They are clearly trying to enforce a border in an inhumane way. And I don't want to get into the whole thing on the reins and the whips and the whatever because frankly, it's like the cinema thing, like. It's this thing we can all argue about that kind of misses the point. But the point is, they were trying to enforce something at the border. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the immigration equivalent of the defund the police arguments, I think we heard from from the left. Look, but look just at, at last week to, to make my point, um, you know, the Biden administration came out with a new rule, a new guideline for ICE, in effect, saying, hey, we're going to prioritize uh, detaining the, the people who present a threat. And we're not going to allow um, Border Patrol officers to, to just detain anyone who uh, is here uh, illegally. And this was something that I think, you know, the, the left liked to a certain extent, although they did get complaints from some groups on the left that it gives Border Patrol officers too much discretion to, to uh, detain people uh, as they want to. But I think the, the challenge on top of that is that they're doing something that they think is likely to um, mollify the critics on the left. But at the same time, it has real world policy implications. Because what I think Biden has done again and again and again, even as they've sort of, I think, quietly said to uh, the, these migrants, don't come, don't come, their actions one after another after another are saying, we're not the Trump administration. And it's definitely the case that smugglers and others are using the just the existence of the Biden administration, the fact that, the, that it is a Biden White House and not a Trump White House to encourage people to make the trip north, which exacerbates the political problem that the president faces on this issue. Uh, all right, Jonah, quick, and then we'll... I have a very short take on it, uh, just sort of summarize, because I agree with Steve. Yasser Arafat, former head of the PLO, he used to, was famous for, he would say one thing in English for American audiences and one and another <laughs> thing in Arabic for Palestinian and Arab and Middle Eastern audiences. And the problem that the Biden administration has is that it's trying to do that, but it's only speaking one language, so both audiences hear. And so the immigrants and refugees, they all hear... We're going to be humane. We're we're suspending uh, prosecutions of be of illegal immigrants unless you're a terrorist. And a lot of these guys are like, "Hey, well, I'm not a terrorist." Um, and at the same time, they're talking about Title Forty Two. I just heard a piece on NPR about how they're still building the wall and doing eminent domain. I heard a thing on Fox about how they are not building the wall, and that's uh, And I think that the <laughs> problem is is that the Biden administration cannot send one set of messages to the progressive base um, without other people like whether it's Fox News or migrants hearing that message and jumping on jumping ugly on it and vice versa. 
and um, and that's why this is going to continue to be a mess for a long time. David, what do they pick in the midterms? What do they pick in What's the midterms? What's the message coming out of the White House a year from now on this? <laughs> uh, I would imagine that the a year from now, well, one, there's probably going to be fervent prayer that this seasonal influx prediction finally, finally plays out. My prediction is this isn't going to be what they're going to talk about in the midterms. They're going to want to talk about anything but this in the midterms because they're kind of they're in this bind where there's the statistics in the Herald Co um, in in the memo, his resignation memo, and this is fascinating. CBP statistics, statistics indicated that nearly seven hundred thousand people have been expelled under Title Forty Two since February this year. Okay. That's a number that is shocking to the left for a lot of reasons that Co outlines. It's also stunning to the right because I bet if you asked a, a average Republican how many people has Joe Biden expelled in 2021, they would say zero. It's open borders. And 700,000 is the number, but they're not going to say, oh, well, I had no idea Joe Biden was expelling so many people. I'm going to vote for them now. So he's he's in a bind here. So my guess is what they're really, really wanting. And if if he is going into the midterms, here's what the message that he wants, which is by next November, the pandemic is decisively under control. The economy is quite robust. And the Republicans of the party of anti-vaxxers, anti-masker, weirdo, Donald Trump, January 6th conspiracy theories. And that's the messaging. And he hopes to talk about immigration as little as possible. All right, Steve, (laughs) where I thought you were doing China, it turns out you're doing Facebook. (laughs) I am indeed doing (laughs) Facebook. Um, Last month, the Wall Street Journal uh, ran a series of articles uh, known as the, became known as the Facebook files uh, based on documents from inside of Facebook that called into question public claims that Facebook was making about its business practices, uh, its efforts to, uh, to provide a, a good platform for people to communicate on, and a variety of other things that uh, Facebook leaders had said over the years. Uh, then this Sunday, uh, Francis Haugen, uh, the whistleblower who, blower who provided those documents to the Wall Street Journal, gave an interview to 60 Minutes in which she detailed her reasons for doing this and the substance of her complaints. And then test, she testified uh, before Congress on Tuesday. And sort of the long and short of what she said is that Facebook has been up to really bad things for a long time. And number one and number two, Facebook has not been straightforward about these really bad things Facebook has been doing for a long time. Uh, My question back to you, Sarah, this comes at a time when you have critics on the left and the right looking at Facebook and other big tech companies In search of some kind of regulation, different reasons for different sides, but that seems to be where this is headed. Does this, do these revelations give that um, enough momentum to actually push Congress into doing something? Or 
because is it the case that because Democrats and Republicans don't agree on what exactly to do, there will not be the kind of regulation that you have so many people calling for? And that the doing something that both sides think they want to do don't at least easily make sense as to why those would solve the problem. Um, I think if it were, you know, the, the rallying cry, regulate Facebook, great. But the second you get past that, um, it's a mess. It's a mess even when you get to how they want to regulate Facebook. Get rid of Section 230. That's not going to change the problem of teenage girls' body issues. Um, it's It has nothing to do with it, in fact. Um, uh, you know, break up big How do you know unless you try? <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, I heard a progressive yesterday talking about how we needed to break up big tech and using TikTok as an example. Okay, well, TikTok is a Chinese company. How would you like to break up a foreign company? And that's not to say that it's entirely stupid. Like if they're the same way that China has uh, banned all sorts of social media over there, we could do things about that here. Um, but it's not, it's just not that simple. Like break up big tech um, or again, how that would solve teenage girls' body image issues. The, the conversation that we haven't been having, and I am, I'm just like looking around me wondering why, uh, is the tobacco litigation. I don't understand. This is starting to look more and more like tobacco in the sense that the tech companies know the detrimental public health effects, uh, the addiction and the public health consequences of their product and have been misleading the public and potentially lying under oath in front of Congress about it. Um, and you have this example from the 90s that is that is also messy, by the way. But, um, you know, we did it with tobacco companies in a way that is insane to me. Like, if you just look back at the history of that and the settlement that the tobacco companies agreed to with the Department of Justice. Uh, but I wonder if 10 years from now, if we're just, it's too soon. Um, but I think that's actually where this will end up closer to something like that than Congress actually figuring out how to regulate it in a way. Again, let's assume that just for a second, the problem is the addiction and public health consequences. So young girls, body images and, uh, people being not able to turn off the app. Nothing that I've heard the Democrats or Republicans come up with actually addresses that at all. David, I think critics of that argument would say the two things are not at all similar. Um, you know, smoking causes direct physical harm and kills people. Um, you know, there is at least, a, you know, a, a sort of a triple bank shot to make the argument that social media has the same effects. And there's, you know, Facebook has made the case for a long time and, and other uh, big tech companies that they do a lot more good than harm. Now, I think part of the problem for Facebook is they released data showing that they were doing good and they withheld data that suggested they were doing harm, which is uh, problematic when you're trying to build trust to make your arguments. But what do you make of Sarah's uh, case about uh, a, a comparison to tobacco litigation? Yeah, I don't, I don't buy the comparison to tobacco litigation all that much. I mean, by the time we had the tobacco litigation, the e the evidence of that there were actual physiological things that happened when you inhaled tobacco smoke that um, 
it's not as if there was no there was no way to say, well, if I use to cigarettes in this way, um, it's good for my body. <laughs> as opposed to if I'm using creating a Facebook group that is setting up a community prayer chain for somebody who has an illness, uh, there's no there's no comparison here. I'm beginning to get a whiff of a lot of the, uh, you guys remember sort of the violent video game uh, panic of the 1990s. Uh, there's this new technology. And rap that we're kind of Rap lyrics. I mean, the Parents' Advisory Council, mm-hmm, do we remember mm-hmm. that? I mean, that we've been through a lot of this before, and it has a lot of echoes of that, to be honest, um, in, in my view. And the other thing that's really interesting to me is, I don't know if you guys have noticed it. I think you have, because I, I think we might have texted about it. But is there, are you sensing this from the right? Big tech is bad. Big tech is bad. Big tech is bad. And here comes this whistleblower like laying into Facebook over allowing too much speech. <laughs> and and now some people on the right are like, uh, wait a minute, um, hold on. And it really illustrates left and right do not have a meeting on the mi- of the minds as to why big tech is bad. Other than there is some meeting on the mi- of the minds on will impact on young people and, and anxiety and depression. But if you look back, if you look at the whistleblower complaints and um, some of this stuff, really the effect on the 2020 election, hate speech, um, human trafficking, um, that deceptions that Facebook isn't as big as people thought it was. Some of these things are directly contrary to this right wing drive that says, let more speech on Facebook, more stuff on Facebook. And that's been a message for a long time from the right. And a lot of these, uh, the, a lot of this whistleblower, this, this whistleblowing material gives ammunition to the left. This is no, Facebook is way too permissive. And I think it's one of the reasons why you're saying, hold on, <laughs> wait, we need to, you know, there, there's a, and it shows the right left divisions over big tech regulation. But the bottom line is, here's, here's the real, here's the problem in social media, us people, it's people. What social media does. We don't blame people for being addicted to cigarettes, but that's apples and oranges. Nicotine is a physically addictive substance. And so is Instagram, social media. It is no, addictive. No, no, no. By any Jonah measure, wants to get we got to use the Hold word on. addictive. No, I know. We're going we're gonna, to, okay, let's end the podcast here. Uh, we're gonna, <laughs> just going to stop right now. <laughs> jo- Jonah, is, Jonah is eating his microphone. Yes. He's so eager He's to so get mad. in. All of the breathing that you've just heard for the past minute and a half has been Jonah waiting yeah. desperately to get in. Got, so I, thanks for joining us today on the Dispatch <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> go, Jonah, go. All right. So first of all, I'm I'm more sympathetic to Sarah's case about the tobacco companies than you guys are. I don't think it's great, but I think that the addiction <laughs> thing is is real. And I think that Facebook is living down to what its starting principle was, which was to objectivize, objectify the male gaze, which is what it started as at Harvard. And it's coming, circling full back to that at, with Instagram. But um, I think where the tobacco comparison falls down is, is like there's a great way to get people to stop smoking cigarettes, 
make them stop smoking cigarettes. Who on earth thinks that the government is going to stop people from using social media entirely? It's just not going to happen, right? But uh, the I want to take a step back. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I think I'm well known as not a conspiracy theorist. I smell a rat with the whistleblower. Uh, this whole thing was put together by Bill Burton in a PR shop that Jen Psaki used to work at. When was the last Bill Burton, time? a former Obama White House staffer, Jen right. Psaki, current White House spokesman. Will it's rare that sort of whistleblowers have a PR rollout that is perfectly coordinated with a huge dump to the Wall Street Journal, followed by a 60 Minutes thing uh, interview on the eve of Senate testimony. Doesn't mean that she's lying. Doesn't mean that she, the, the the stuff she has isn't real. I'm not saying you know there are people out there saying this is like the 2016 Russia collusion, you know, steel memo stuff. I'm not saying that. But take a step back for a second. Um, I, I'm a big fan of a Marxist historian named Gabriel Kolko. Gabriel Kolko is one of these Marxists who is so far to the left, he thinks the progressives were right wing. And his argument is, he has a wonderful book called The Triumph of Conservatism, some wonderful history in it. And one of the points he's utterly persuaded me on, it was a big big feeding, uh, big, big influence on me in my first book, um, is that the whole myth of big business or the whole idea that big business and government are at war with each other is a myth. And it's been a myth throughout American history, going back to the railroads. Uh, the head of U.S. Steel pleaded with Congress to socialize the steel industry because they wanted to lock in profits for themselves. You can look at almost every big regulation, Fortune 500 companies, they like the idea of major regulation because it becomes a barrier to entry for smaller firms and provides them certainty. And I've written about this a bunch with regard to Facebook. Zuckerberg has been begging the federal government to regulate all of this stuff for several years now. In fact, every time I turn on cable news in the mornings, I see commercials with these hipster, you know, 25, 30-year-olds talking about how back in the 90s when I was born, people still used dial-up and they had, you know, lanterns made from, from whale fat and, it was, and, and they were, you know, rode around in horseless carriages and that was the last time that they regulated the internet. Don't we need new regulations? Facebook really, really wants to be regulated because it doesn't like having to deal with these problems. And they've basically been begging Congress to do it. I am not saying that she is some deep plant or anything like that. What I am saying is that I predict that we end up getting regulations because of all of this moral panic stuff about it. And I shouldn't say moral panic in a dismissive way. I think a lot of these things are legitimately bad. But we're going to get end up getting regulations that solidifies Facebook's place as the dominant incumbent in this space rather than hurts it. Because this is what has happened time and time again, going back a century, and I can do chapter and verse on the New Deal on this, Facebook wants to be regulated. I think they're going to use this as an opportunity to be regulated. And, uh, and the Democrats are being smart about it. And I, and I do think that this is part of a Democratic PR campaign. They did that a lot with the tobacco industry. They did that a lot with a lot of other industries. And it just smells like that. It doesn't mean it's a lie. But I bet you when we look closer at some of this stuff, it's pretty exaggerated. And this woman kind of has the same feels that public health official in in Florida who uh, kept accusing the state of doing all of these terrible things. And it turned out that she was kind of, you know, exaggerating a bit. 
time will tell, but that's where I come down on all this. So real, real quickly, um, I think you're right that Facebook wants to be regulated. They have, as you point out, made that clear again and again and again. I don't think there's any scenario in which they wanted this. Um, yeah, in no, particular, the documents that were that were released uh, before she uh, put a face to to her whistleblowing. Um, you know, it, it's interesting if you look at. We should note here that the dispatch is a part of the Facebook fact checking program. We partner with Facebook in our fact checking, and you know, our, our role in that. And you can context, tell here how much that biases our conversation. <laughs> right, <about it>. right, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, we have been, I think, uh, pretty consistently critical of Facebook in a number of different ways. And let me add to that criticism now. Um, I think a big part of the problem here is. You know, if these documents and if some of this testimony is to be believed, you have Facebook on the one hand, you know, encouraging things like a fact checking program. I think, you know, we do a fair amount of good in the fact checking program. We do fact checking in the context of Facebook. We do fact checking outside of Facebook, but we're proud of, of what we do. We think our work stands up and we think it's, it's helpful for people to see it. But if it's the case, as um, Ms. Haugen claims, that Facebook sort of tweaking the algorithm to make hateful, um, you know, conspiracy-fueled content uh, go viral because it keeps people on the platform, which then they can uh, advertise or uh, monetize through advertisers, it would mean that th that would overwhelm any of the good we think we're doing and any of the good that the Facebook fact-checking program is doing. Uh, so it, it will be problematic, I think, if we get further confirmation, there's further documentation of the claims that she's making there. But I think you're right, Jonah, that you know this may be one of those moments where while Facebook would never have wanted some of this stuff to come out, I mean, in particular, the, the documentation on the studies about uh, young girls and Instagram, um, that they may see this as a lemons lemonade moment and, and use it to push for a regulation that they like because they know regulation is coming. All right. If you've made it this far with us, uh, it's that season. And I have a favor to ask of dispatch listeners in the comments on the website, the dispatch.com. You can get to this podcast there for our members. Um, it's Halloween season. I need a Halloween costume for the brisket. He's now 15 months old and a giant. He has three baby girlfriends. So bonus, if you can come up with a Halloween costume that incorporates, uh, three girls and a large, large meat brisket. Um, so, uh, thank you in advance because I am stuck. I cannot think of something good and guys, maybe next week I'll ask you if you've come up with any good suggestions for the Halloween costume theme this year. Last year we did uh, baby Yoda. So that seemed obvious. This Could year, he just be less Bosley obvious. and they all be angels? I think that'll be hard though, to like get the angel thing with like baby girls. Yeah. 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 They're, I mean, what am I going to put them in tights? Like that's what baby girls wear anyway. No. Like I can't put them in heels. <laughs> you could put them in like actual angel costumes, like a pun kind of angel. That's true. They yeah. could be pun angels for sure. Um, this is the problem, you see? So uh, thank you. And thank you for listening. And again, rate us wherever you're getting your podcast. Tell your friends about this podcast. We like new people. Thanks, guys.
So wait, did the New York Times use the term sword tease? Sorties. Sorties. Yes. <laughs> Sorties. Okay. Caleb, we can yes. cut that. <laughs> 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 Next time I see you, I want you all wearing your sword tees. <laughs> no, I thought it was like sword tees, as in to tease someone. Like, oh, I thought you were saying like a sword, two swords, and you make a tee out of them. No, I thought you were saying a like, sword as in t-shirt. Literally a t-shirt. Like a sword, yes. Yes, no, a sword, a t-shirt. Which David probably has, let's be honest. Oh, like, like Several. a tease, though, like if you tease the country by like with your sword, like, oh, am I going to hit you? Am I going to? And I was like, that actually like would make a ton of sense, but also would be like really phallic and weird. I mean, not nothing quite as funny as Chinese aggression. <laughs> I was really confused. <laughs> OK. All right. All right. We're back. Sorry, David. Please continue. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 